Hello, my name is Miguel Resendiz. I'm a marketing professional, entrepreneur, and the host of this podcast, Midcast, a program where we discuss how to monetize your talent, ideas, and show examples of people who have successfully done so in the past. In this podcast, we aim to bring the best business and life insights to help you materialize your goals. An open mind will go a long way in this program, so fasten your seatbelts and get ready for the show. Welcome once again to yet another episode of your favorite podcast, Midcast. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to a human rights activist and a healthcare worker, worker Tristan Jones. How are you, Tristan? I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me, Miguel. Uh, uh, I really appreciate the invitation to be on this podcast. Yeah, well, you have done some pretty impressive work, and I, I read your uh, your material for your for your talk. So, do you mind giving us a little bit of you know background of where you where you're from? And what inspired you to begin working in human rights? Yeah, so uh, my so my name is Tristan Jones. I'm from a, a small community in northern British Columbia called Fort Saint John. Uh, Fort Saint John is a uh, it's a very old settlement in British Columbia. Uh, it's a, it's one of the oldest European settlements in uh, ever. Uh, it was founded a number of years ago. Um, I first got involved into human rights activism due to my experiences growing up in Fort St. John. Um, for anyone who can't tell, I am of mixed race. Uh, I uh, claim uh, half Chinese descent and half uh, English sort of British descent. And uh, I've, I've been the target. I was the target of racism and discrimination and prejudice uh, all growing up. Uh, and at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, um, uh, I, I, like many people, uh, was forced to move home after years of being away. And um, the pandemic really highlighted some of the problems that my community still struggled with. And that was uh, uh, specifically anti-Asian racism at the time, but just racism as a whole. And... Uh, I was the target of someone's intolerance at a, um, a local f grocery store, and it, it kind of just sparked something in me, and uh, I ended up going viral a little uh, in my uh, small circle, I guess you could say, on Facebook, and um, I kind of springboarded that into um, uh, helping to start, spark the conversation in Fort St. John. Um, after uh, it was, it was only a couple of weeks later that um, George Floyd uh, tragically died in Minnesota, and um, the protests that we saw kind of uh, ignite across the United States uh, were felt here in Canada as well. And um, I helped uh, to organize and to mobilize some people in my community, and. It was through that that um, I began, I was, I was told about the opportunity uh, to give a, a TED talk at my university, uh, Simon Fraser, uh, through their uh, TEDx affiliate. And I kind of threw a shot in the dark um, to see if I could get, uh, if I could get uh, a chance to speak at such a, a prestigious uh, conference. And I was quite fortunate Uh, to hear that uh, they they were interested in having me come and speak, uh, and uh, yeah, that's the uh, I gave the I gave my talk in in November, and we're still kind of just waiting for it to be released publicly, but uh, that's where we're at right now. Yeah, um, 
So I actually look into the requirements to apply for mm-hmm. for the talk in TEDx or TED Talk, yeah. sorry. And so apparently for for this particular one, you you have um you have to kind of bring a topic about doing something uh, in an unconventional way. Is mm-hmm. that correct? So um, I, I'm wondering now, uh, what was it that you do? Or that, how how do you approach uh, human human rights activism in in an unconventional way? What what part of it is unconventional? So uh, the the theme of the conference this year was unravel, um, unravel. Uh, it, we were unraveling all sorts of various stories um, and and different types of ideas and concepts. Uh, mine in particular, uh, my talk, I really wanted to focus on the fact that um, racism in rural communities um, is not really discussed in uh, the modern dialogue, uh, especially here in Canada. Uh, in Canada, one of our biggest, I guess, um, how would I say, one of our biggest like downfalls is that we take a look at our friends to the south and we think that uh it couldn't we couldn't be any worse than that right like we don't we're not nearly as as brutal uh when it comes to racism as the united states but that's just not true and um one of the things i wanted to discuss was the uh and i wanted to really shine a light on is the stories that aren't told about racism in rural communities uh and i also wanted to kind of spotlight some of the the harsh harsh realities uh that goes with this sort of these sorts of conversations um, one of the things, when, when I was beginning my protests and one of the things I discussed uh, during the application process was about how um, when I was wanting to engage with people, it was always just about the conversation. Uh, one of the primary things that I was constantly having to explain was uh, what all lives matter meant and why uh, all lives matter is seen as um, being negative in the, in the conversation about human rights. And I always found that every single person who, who came to me uh, to discuss this um, always left with a complete understanding of the issue. And it was just the fact that someone decided to sit there and have this conversation instead of yelling at them and making them sound silly or, or, or um, invalidating their beliefs without you know, explaining why it is that the, there's a difference in an in, in, in outlook. And I think that's a big part of it is like, like I've, I've always stressed the personal connection and the, the individual and uh, to push for change because uh, in, in these rural communities, that's, that's what's going to change these sorts of outlooks is by having these conversations because no one else is, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, dialogue for the longest time has been the thing that keep us sane or mm-hmm. that keep our societies moving forward, right? Yeah. So, just a little bit to. I hope I'm not putting you in the spot here, but nope. what does all life matter mean to you? All lives matter. Um, for me, it's it's kind of a misconstrued and really convenient um, type of messaging uh, that really just doesn't uh, address the issues at play. Um, when we say all lives matter, it doesn't, all lives don't really matter right now. 
uh, this was something that was quite clear to me in my community when I was doing these protests. It was, um, there was a very tragic um, sort of tableau of, of, of this whole situation um, in Fort St. John where we were holding our protests. It was on the corner of 100th and 100th. That's the main street area, the main drag. There is a large park uh, on that corner or it covers about like half a block uh, where this hotel once was. And uh, there's a couple of picnic benches and it has become kind of like the, the known haunt for, um, uh, I, I would say displaced and um, homeless uh, indigenous peoples in Fort St. John. And so when we were doing our protests, um, like tragically, like there was, there was three or four um, uh, indigenous homeless peoples that were sitting and drinking and you know um, it was just a tragic image that uh, of the fact that the, their lives have been failed uh, by the system uh, I remember having a chat with a couple of them uh, like during the talk uh, during our protests because they were they were confused as to why our science said black lives matter when uh, indigenous lives don't matter up north, and that that was something that really that really stuck with me, and and was something that I think um, really explains that is that all lives don't matter now. In this case, indigenous lives didn't matter, and that was clear. Uh, some of the photos that were uh, published um, in the the local newspaper, the Alaska Highway News, had that that very just tragic image of these these people who. The system have failed just in the background and I think it just it just showed why all lives don't matter and I, and I think it shows why saying that is just an injustice to the situation yeah okay and what do you, why do you think there's the need for some people to to respond to to black lives matter or other movements with things such as uh, all lives matter and blue lives <laughs> matter yeah, this it's something I've um, I've studied in uh, university. Um, I, I majored in uh, political science, uh, focusing on international issues. And one of the classes I took was on um, human rights. And one of the things I I, for, I remember learning uh, in this I think it was a third second or third year class was about how uh, in a lot of situations um, where there is very clearly two tiers of um, society, whether it's separated by race or religion or gender or what have you, uh, like currently, like in this conversation, we're discussing the, the, the separation between white people and people of color. Uh, the white people at the top hold the rights and for, and for other the people below who are starting to gain rights, such as uh, like in the civil rights uh, movement days in the 60s when uh, segregation ended or like gaining the right to vote, all of this being uh, the gender pay gap closing, you know what I mean? Like as these, as these um, rights are being added onto these other citizens who didn't have it, there's a conception that other, the other people's rights are being taken away. And in some respect, I, like that is true, but in the same respect, they're only doing that so that everyone can have the same. And so I think it's, it's an insecurity and, um, I think it's, it, it's also perhaps a, um, how would I say, it's, it's the fact that people uh, that have been put in these privileged positions don't truly understand 
the privileged position they are in. And when they see other people trying to aspire to that and to gain to that, they view it as an affront to them, an attack on them. And I think that's quite problematic and why uh, dialogue is, should be uh, continuing in more open forum where and we're less, less judgment, you know? Yeah. Um, so you said that some people to some extent are losing rights with these uh, social movements. So what kind of rights are people losing? I wouldn't say, well, okay, I guess I, it's, I wouldn't say losing. It's the perception that they're losing rights because say now the, uh, the instead of hiring all white people, we also now have to hire a couple people of color or uh, instead of um, like say a, an entire, um, say someone is, is being put up for a job and, and because uh, uh, the, the, the affirmative action or whatever policies have, have di dictated that they need to hire a person of color so as to increase diversity, uh, that uh, the person, uh, the, the white guy uh, who was up for that position probably feels that uh, he is having his rights taken away because he is not eligible for that position because he, does, he is not a person of color. But in, in, there's a fallacy in that because the only reason that needs to happen is because uh, white people have always traditionally been in, in that position to get that job. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, when, when you, you tried, um, well, you didn't try, but you kind of mentioned how some things in Canada, we look at our neighbor of the South and oftentimes yeah. we feel like we can, we're not as bad as they are. And, and so you, you mentioned in your talk that Canada has a different type of immigration or immigrant assimilation to to their communities, right? So you talk about yes. the mosaic and the, the melting pot um, mm -hmm. kind of like model. So w what are the differences between both of them? And um, why? which one would you think is, is better? And if none of them are good, what are the other alternatives? Yeah, so uh, the mosaic uh, model and the melting pot model are um, they're quite uh, well-known terms uh, in terms of immigration policy. Uh, the melting pot model is what the United States uh, has. And in the United States, um, the way that they frame their immigration is they hope that all new immigrants would give up their identities and their cultures. Uh, and so as to take on that American identity for themselves, sort of mixing into this melting pot that is the American uh, identity. Uh, the mosaic model, however, is different uh, in Canada. We uh, instead, what we, we, we hope for is for uh, immigrants to keep their cultures and their ideologies and their religions and um, become and create sort of like pocket uh, cultures, uh, a, a sort of mosaic, as it were. Uh, that's where the name comes from, is you have these little inter, uh, uh, these cultures that can all kind of uh, can stay themselves true to themselves and create communities within their own communities. Uh, for me, um, in, my, in my TED talk, I discuss how uh, the mosaic model at face appears to be so much more culturally sensitive and um, it, it seems to be the more uh, respectful of the two models in terms of immigration. Uh, but I also, I have some, some key issues with it. 
being that um, there isn't enough support for immigration to rural communities. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I discussed in the talk is that uh, all it does is really create barriers uh, in because these these people are are being are immigrating, say, to uh, my hometown of Fort St. John, and they, they come for economic economic prospects. Uh, there's lots of money in the area. It's it's filled with uh, oil and natural gas reserves. So uh, it's a great place for new immigrants to come and and earn their money and perhaps uh, set, start a family. Uh, the problem being, though, that. Um, there isn't enough education uh, regarding new cultures and um, the, uh, there isn't enough support for new immigrants to, to sort of assimilate and to learn about the society. And there isn't enough interest from the people themselves to learn about these people, instead seeing them as coming in and uh, they're foreign and uh, they're, they're changing languages on signs and they're taking our jobs and, and that in itself is, is dangerous and it, and it breeds divides. And um, uh, there is many a story I can, I, I can talk about and, and touch on about um, the families or the children of immigrants uh, who have come and expected a whole new uh, a whole new world uh, once they've come to Canada and the harsh realities of racism in the rural communities has really turned them off uh, from immigrating or migrating uh, into these smaller communities and uh, they tend to stick towards the cities and I think that's tragic and it's it's a it's a injustice and it's a it's a it's honestly it's the, the rural communities are missing out on the uh, amazing talent that can come from immigration and the, and the brain power, you know? Yeah, so how, how do you think we can solve this? And is this the duty of the government or is this something that we as individuals need to start uh, working on? Um, and also, how do you incentivize individuals to start working on this? Because, look, I I can kind of understand the insecurities, right? Um, especially especially yeah. if you have been, let's say, in one of these rural communities for 50 years, and all of a sudden you see people that were never living there, right? Uh, I mean, people that uh, I don't know, like let's say maybe people people from Asia, and uh, that that you didn't you were not used to seeing. Uh, for like 50 years, at least not in these communities. And it kind of, I think people tend to cherish the past. And I'm not really trying to justify the racism, but I, I can kind of understand how some some people may feel that their culture may be a little bit uh, invaded. Yes. And and um, for example, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an example that happened to me. So I lived in Canada for let's say four or five years um, at that point. And then I went to Germany, right? And uh, yeah. when I moved to Germany, I was really uncomfortable uh, seeing only one type of people all over the place. So there was only white people, right? And <laughs> I mean, because in Canada, there's people from every every type of people, really. Like yeah. you, you can see yeah. any anyone, right? <laughs> like all the combinations there are to see, you can see them here and then you can see them a lot. And in, in Germany, I, I could only see white people. And that really freaked me out. Then I went to Mexico uh, sometime er, er, before I went to, to Germany. And I was uncomfortable seeing only Mexicans. I was like, 
it, it feels really weird to be in a homogeneous country. Then when I went to Japan, yeah, I felt the same, <laughs> you know, uh, and 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 I think you you are just kind of attached to the type of, of people you see in your community. So since I live yes. in Vancouver and I see people from everywhere in the world, so for me, looking at, at Asians and white people and black people and Latino people and all the type of people that you can that you can imagine in the street and not even paying attention to that is normal. But once I see only one type of people, kind of feels weird. And and look, I'm not saying like I hate homogeneous countries. I I respect them. I just yeah. Uh, I just feel uncomfortable because it is not what I'm used to uh, do. And I can kind of feel uh, or I can kind of understand their point of view. Now uh, the question is: so we we understand this is tragic and and this is something that's leading to not only so, uh, societal issues in these rural communities, but also economic issues, because we know that these rural communities are suffering from a lot of brain uh, brain leakage, like in terms of like they're, they're, mm -hmm. they have talent, they have really intelligent people, but because they don't have the industries or they or these very intelligent people want to move to the urban areas, then they move to, let's say, Vancouver or Toronto, and then they leave these small rural communities with very uh, well, very experienced older people, but this is not sustainable, right? <laughs> so it, it, no, one one hundred percent. And there's a very um, topical um, example from my home community uh, has just occurred um, about a month ago. Uh, one of the doctors um, that serves at the hospital in Fort Saint John. Uh, wrote a public op-ed to the local newspaper uh, addressed to the Member of Parliament um, for the uh, P uh, Peace, Peace Region uh, North uh, riding for the federal government uh, to um, the, the sitting uh, Member of Parliament being uh, Bob Zimmer of the Conservative Party. Now the, 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 the op-ed was, um, was addressed to the, the Member of Parliament Pure, purely because the uh, the city member of parliament, um, uh, so, uh, I believe it was he reshared or supported um, uh, a conspiracy theory that has been gaining quite a lot of traction in rural communities, something called the Great Reset. Uh, now, this op-ed was basically called out to the member of parliament because uh, he was supporting this, uh, even though it is a debunked conspiracy theory. Uh, the, the letter highlighted the fact that uh, in Fort St. John for the COVID-19 response, the majority of doctors are of immigrant origin. Now, Fort St. John has had a huge problem with uh, retaining physicians. Uh, they have a massive new hospital that was just built some, some 10 years ago that is completely understaffed. They have an ICU unit uh, that is understaffed because no one wants to go up there and work. Uh, and the op-ed discussed how many doctors and other healthcare professionals didn't feel safe uh, in these sorts of communities, especially when the city member of parliament shares sorts of things like, like this. And Fort St. John is one of the northern response units for the pandemic. And uh, as of today, the northern health region has one of the most high infection rates. And from what I know, they're shipping people south. And it, it, with... The fact that their doctors aren't wanting to stay, it just makes it all the more scary. Uh, and I think that's just one of the many different examples that could like show like how uh, 
fostering these sorts of ideas and this sort of um, these sorts of thoughts within your within your writing and within your within your society in general uh, can force these people to just say no. We're it's we don't want to provide service for you. We're not going to risk our lives for you. You know, like we're not going to come up and staff these hospitals because it's not safe for us. So why should we make uh, why should we make it safe for you? You know. Yeah, well, I, you know, um, I think a lot of people don't want to risk their, their their sanity just for the sake mm -hmm. of providing help to a community that that doesn't want them there anyways, right? And that's a big yes. problem. Um, I I have kind of so gone through that sometimes. Like um, there is some sort of like um, anger sometimes that you when when someone doesn't want you in a, in a place and but they still yeah. want you to be there to serve them. It is kind of like I don't want you to be here or I wouldn't want you to be here if uh, if you were not useful to me, right? Kind of like that. Yes, exactly. And, and that's a bit uncomfortable because you're like, well, so you just want me because I'm useful for you to serve you, basically. Kind of like a slave, right? Um, although you pay mm -hmm. me and everything. So uh, big difference, but obviously uh, it can, it, in, in, inside of you, it kind of feels like they're just seeing you as a tool. Uh, going back to to how we can fix this, because I think this is the most important thing. Like, I think the problem is well stated. There, there are uh, clear consequences to, um, to these issues, but we need to start thinking about uh, solutions, I think. And you, something that I really liked um, about you when we talk is that you mentioned quite particularly that you don't really like to label people before you even talk to them. So mm -hmm. you said that um, you're against cancel culture and you're against labeling people as racist right away. So, so tell us a little bit about that. I, yeah. So when it comes to cancel culture, this, this resurgence and this, the, it's a consequence of social media and the, uh, and it's a consequence of uh, the advancement in technology. And it's something that we do have to live with. Um, cancel culture, I find to be incredibly toxic, especially around sorts of these sorts of very divisive and um, sensitive issues uh, when discussing racism like um, there's a very fine line between someone who is a, is a straight straight 100% uh, racist like uh, and someone who just doesn't know and uh, I know that uh, I, I myself 100% uh, can say that in uh, in my formative years, I was I was definitely probably a little racist just from the as just due to a due to the product of the environment I was in, you know. Uh, and it was something that opened my eyes. And when I came when I moved to Vancouver, realizing that I held these sorts of prejudices and these beliefs over number a number of years, and they were just not true. And uh, I had found that if someone if someone had accused me of being a racist. Uh, because of a prior comment I made, that would really upset me. And that might even just further entrench my beliefs because now all of a sudden it's an us versus them scenario because someone's calling me out for whatever offhand comment I made, say, 10 years ago. Uh, and that's not productive. Uh, the, the racism uh, in general is it's, it's, it's a state of mind. It's an ideology. It's something that can be unlearned. Uh, and... Uh, the, the way to do that is through conversation, through dialogue, and 
you can't have dialogue if you've all of a sudden you've canceled you've canceled somebody and uh, a bunch of Twitter trolls have doxed them and uh, all of their public information is online and next thing you know uh, the, the, that person has just you've just you've just created yourself uh, a little problem uh, all in itself because what if that person goes and and starts uh, mobilizing on him on his own and uh, it's it, it just it's not productive to 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 call people out and cancel them for something that they did uh, in the past. People learn. Uh, people can change. I'm a big believer in that, and people can um, through through dialogue can uh, change their opinions on race. It's you just, you just need to be patient. Uh, you need to. Um, you need to be understanding and you need to be compassionate as to why they believe that way. What, for me, it's always, why do you think the way you do? I want to understand that. So then I can better understand um, perhaps to help change the way, the way you think. Uh, I, I'm not looking to enforce my beliefs on someone. I just want there to be a common understanding that we're all people and that we're all humans, we're all Canadians. Uh, and that's all it really comes down to. And um, if you can, if you can have, you can have these types of conversations without labeling someone a racist, because uh, they'll probably be way more appreciative of the fact that you didn't uh, cancel them and just sat there and talked to them like a human and sat there and worked out the issues uh, without uh, resorting to so much more draconian methods <laughs> yeah for sure um i think <clears throat> sorry i think one of the main issues um right now it's just this rhetoric of us versus them i, th I actually yes. see in social media people people I that i that i see on on facebook um these are people that i know personally that actually think they're in a war you know uh, they they call they call for urgent help for allies um, from both sides. You know you you can see yeah. you can see people who who believe all of these uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, it is just surprising how many people are not willing to to consider using the the COVID nineteen vaccine. You know, uh, there are people that actually think it's going to be dangerous for us, and obviously, um, apparently, there are some side effects, but. Uh, for some people, right? But we don't. Yes. I mean, the side effects for 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 COVID is probably die, right? That's that's one of the side effects, dying. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I haven't seen anybody that took the vaccine that died. Hopefully, hopefully that's not the case. But um, that I think people need to be more understanding. That the, the faster we get vaccinated, the the better our society will be, and also. I think there is a lot of um, extremism in both sides, but the, the, yes. But then the problem is when you say yes, there's far right people, but but when you talk to other people, I, I have talked to some people that identify as as left or liberals, and um, I ask them, do you think there's such a thing as a far left? Um, sometimes they just don't think so. Do you think there's a far left? Oh, that most definitely the. The far left definitely exists in Canada. Um, I don't think it exists to the extent that uh, uh, we in, envision, like say in the United States or in in Paris, uh, like or like France, for example. When I was living in Paris, 
Um, this was right around when a lot of the yellow vest protests started. Oh, up. Yeah. When do you live there? And uh, I lived there in 2016 to end of 2017. Um, and it was when a lot of the protests against Macron for his uh, reforms to, started to happen. And I got to, I, that was where I got my first, uh, first in life encounter with uh, what is known as Antifa um, with the whole, uh, they were rioting and there was, Oh, it, it was a mess. Paris was an absolute, it was anarchy in a couple of the uh, arrondissements uh, for, for quite a few weeks. Um, but, you know, I don't think that exists necessarily to that extent in Canada. Um, uh, I just don't think there's a space for it. Uh, one thing in Canada is we have had quite a lot of um, uh, mass protests as of late. Um, especially around uh, climate change and the, the race protests over the past couple of years. And you, you don't really see the sorts of really far left extremism that uh, you see in the United States. Um, now, that, that's not to say it, maybe it's not there. Uh, maybe they're just not as active. Um, but I just don't see them as destructive as they have been in some other locations. Um, I also, th I also think it's important to distinguish between um, uh, the far left, uh, like uh, a pol Politico, you know, like the base of like, um, like the Bernie Sanders uh, progressive wing and uh, the far left, um, like extremist wing of say the United States. I think those are, I think uh, those are two different, two separate things um, uh, that need to be distinguished because uh, there is this difference between being a progressive and say being a straight up uh, anti-fascist uh, socialist uh, extremist it's it's completely it, i think there it is i think it is different yeah so obviously um it i mean these are really complicated issues and i honestly do not understand yes. uh the the entire uh, i mean i don't understand any of the movements to be honest and i think i don't understand them because i'm just not part of them but I try to keep my mind open all the time. And um, I think keeping my mind open has really, I mean, I, I think in, in, to some extent um, makes people label me as, right, as a right-wing person sometimes. Yeah. Because I, I try to listen to, to one of the sides that you're not supposed to listen to. You're supposed to label them yeah. and you're supposed to satanize them. And I think that's one of the things that I, I, I thought really interesting on your approach, because you were basically mm -hmm. just approaching these people and telling them, look, uh, let's talk and let's let's figure out a way for us to reach this understanding, because I think you're right. I think they understand that you're a person and even though uh, they believe that maybe the, their culture is being diluted, they also know that you're bringing value to them. So like, I think as soon as you start mm -hmm. talking and then you say, look, uh, I, I just want to feed my my kids and I just want to um, raise my family here. I want to make sure that this economy, this economy is more prosperous. Then you realize that you have more things in common than you have in, uh, exactly. in contrast, right? Exactly. So, so once you realize that there's more in common <laughs> between you, <laughs> uh, the only difference is, uh, maybe where you were born and the color of your, of your skin and 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 the, basically maybe the cultural context, but most of the people really want the same things, right? You want your kids to be safe. Exactly. You don't want people to be struggling with drugs in your in the streets. 
you don't want people to be living in the streets. Well, everybody, I don't know anybody that's not complaining about homelessness. People from the left and people from the right are complaining about homelessness. Nobody wants more homeless, right? Everybody wants things to, to be solved. Yeah. <laughs> so there is just the difference in approaches. I think some people want um, the government to, to build facilities for them. And some people just want them to take ownership and to build their own lives. And, you know, they just they, they believe in a more like a personal um, ownership kind of uh, approach. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we all know that the government needs to, to do something and we are all telling the government to do something. So that's just the difference. But I think uh, yes. you are. Uh, that's one of the things I was really impressed by, honestly. And um, one of the but coming back to the solution, uh, you, we we know that universities are probably the place to begin uh, this dialogue because uh, universities mm-hmm. are open to dialogue and stuff like that. Um, you you're familiar with SFU. Let's use SFU as the platform. How will you probably go about start doing this in you know start uh, establishing this dialogue in SFU at SFU? So. Uh, first, uh, you would you would want to reach out to the various um, uh, uh, groups uh, at, on campus uh, to get all of their uh, various opinions. I, w- I would want you'd want like representation from say like the African Students Union. Uh, you'd want representation from the Indigenous communities uh, on campus. Uh, you but and you'd also want representation from say the uh, the very large Asian uh, communities as well, uh, because SFU is. SFU is such a multicultural, uh, and we both know, like it's, it's, it's just a, a, this absolute mash of different cultures and ideas and people from all over the world. And you'd need, for, for you to be able to get it right, you would need to have that sort of representation. Uh, you'd also need to have dialogue at the highest levels because uh, what it really comes down to is, is having these sorts of conversations. Um, one thing to highlight, I think, would be the absolutely messy uh, situation about the black alumnus that was um, arrested on campus a couple of weeks ago, and uh, that uh, has caused an uproar um, amongst uh, the the BIPOC community at SFU, and I think justifiably so. And um, I think that this leaves an opportunity uh, for the administration of the university to have these sorts of sit down conversations with the student groups because. Uh, SFU does have a very spotty history at listening to us. I know that like the student union building, for example, it was a whole struggle to get um, some of these groups uh, space inside the, the building. And uh, just, just having like this, this is just the perfect opportunity for the university to extend that olive branch and, and have that call to action and that discussion uh, it, and I think that I think that's what needs to happen is uh, rep- representatives from the various student body uh, needs to get in a room with um, with the administration and talk about what the next steps could be, whether is whether it's um, assembling a sort of committee uh, within the university to help address some of the more systemic issues. Um, uh, for, using the example of that alumnus. Uh, being arrested. Uh, one one important thing I think would be the re, like the discussion and evaluation of calling the RCMP on uh, on campus, and perhaps that's a discussion about training in regards to the security services that 
SFU, uh, uh, whether they contract out, I'm not sure, or hire them internally. Uh, but I think these are the kinds of things that can be done, like assembling some sort of committee to begin discussing, discussing it, the issues at hand uh, from the proper representat representation with the proper representation of the various groups that make up the student body. Yeah, and I mean, there, these are, you're, you're touching on a lot of really difficult topics, I think, uh, in terms of like, mm -hmm. how, how are we going to, you know, um, understand this? Uh, the, the situation with uh, the Black alumnus that got arrested was a really, yeah, was a really tough one. And I saw a lot of uh, people saying that they do not... Ashen from both yeah. sides. <laughs> well, yeah, and look, I, I did not, I, I honestly, well, I don't know anything about the case. So I just know what happened uh, or what, what was reported. And, and well, like... Um, I, I just hope the person is safe and the person can uh, start mm. moving on with his life and hopefully he manages to recover from this soon, right? That's, um, that's I, all I can hope. Yes. And, and as soon as I started to see the passion that, that was created in the comment section, then I, I decided to actively just take myself out of it. I, I never commented anything. I actually approached to see if I could help in some way, but um, I did not uh, want to comment publicly anything because uh, I realized that the dialogue that was that, that was ensued in these comments were just not pro productive I thought exactly I realized that yeah. a lot of these um, you know if you want to help well approach privately the person that you think will be most likely to to direct you towards the the places where you can help right um, but then the way the way the way is so that I mean that's a clear example of how um, there is a battle of us versus versus them, right? Um, yes, exactly. Like there was no there. There were some people that were trying to reach the middle point, and some people that were uh, trying to um, just create a, a safe space for dialogue. But at that point, it was too late. Some people were already heated. And they were just like, shut up, <laughs> and you know, you, yeah. you, you name it. Um, so and that I think it's just, uh, I think it should just serve as an example of why these sorts of conversations need to be happening and why, like if we, for using SFU as an example, right, is if, if changes to happen on campus, there needs to be that space for dialogue and for conversation and um, there needs to be pressure on the administration to um, say answer uh, to some of these pressing issues at hand. And um, I know there was an, a new incoming president last I last I had seen. Um, uh, I, I, I believe her name is Joy Johnson. I, I, I could yes, be wrong. Joy and uh, she, uh, I know she has made a big uh, point of of hoping to uh, advance conversations on say on on issues like reconciliation. Um, but w to be honest, we haven't really seen uh, anything that can, uh, besides say, like, I know they changed the, the design on the regalia for graduation uh, to have to reflect Indigenous design. But besides that, uh, like, there hasn't really been any big, you know, centerpiece thing that the administration is doing. And um, I think there is just such a good opportunity here uh, for SFU to begin uh, to have these conversations 
Uh, it's just a matter of getting all of these people in a room and talking. <laughs> yeah, well, I I understand your point, but I think this sort of moderation, uh, maybe, yeah, like the moderation role for these conversations um, need mm -hmm. to be a little bit passed down to the SFSS, I think. Yeah. Uh, the the SFSS okay. is the Simon Fraser Student Society. And the reason why I, mm -hmm. think, I think that is because there are people, I mean, clearly we're all students, right? And if, if people from our own cohort uh, are the ones facilitating these conversations, then it is, I think it is easier to begin uh, a conversation or that's how I imagine it anyways. But we, we, saw, we saw that a lot of people were actually um, blaming the, the SFSS for, for, yes. going to, for, for uh, allegedly taking biases and stuff. Look, I don't... And I think that's, that's also perhaps a strike on the SFSS's PR um, just for over the past couple of years, you know? And yeah. well, I think they, they just have a bad rap for uh, university politics aside. They, just, they don't necessarily have the best public image. And I think uh, repairing that is the only way to uh, use them, I guess, as a vehicle for change. Yeah, I... I I tried to to be part of this success and uh, I saw the potential and I think honestly like mm -hmm. the, some I I really like most of the things that the current administration is doing and mm -hmm. I'm I'm very happy that um, that they're able to work together and be able to get things done. They seem to all be in the same page and I think that's one of the most important things that exactly that look I, I I usually prefer a little bit more of a diversity in terms of diversity of thought but. We have seen how how badly it it develops at the SFSS. Mm -hmm. Like there's you know it, it usually <laughs> yeah it usually leads to conflicts that that generate drama that basically just uh, end up wasting a lot of resources. Yeah. Overshadowing what could be um, a productive you know a tenure on on the SFSS. Mm -hmm. um, and. Do you think the university maybe, I mean, one of the things I was, I was maybe thinking about was that the university could introduce um, active listening courses for most faculties, because I think that's one of the skills that we are really not um, developing in mm -hmm. university. You know, uh, I think we're developing one of the two of the most important skills that uh, a human can have nowadays, which is the ability to express ourselves uh, via writing and speaking yeah right and and then and the second one i'm not so sure about because most people are really afraid of speaking in public but let's say that sfu is doing a decent job at uh, speaking and writing you know building those skills but i see that they are really uh, struggling at getting us to listen i mean just look at how we uh, how we listen to our professors most people are in in facebook while the professor are are instructing the lectures so listening is definitely one of the hardest part of of the communication uh process and right now i think we just don't do it very well uh, do you think that's maybe one of the approaches that the university can take and help I... us to incentivize um dialogue I don't think, I do think you're probably on the right track there, Miguel, to be honest. Uh, I do know that SFU does, want to, like you say, they do emphasize writing and the conversation aspects in, say, like their seminar approaches that they take, um, where they do try to encourage conversation among students. 
uh, I do. I like that. I, I think it is. I think it would be accurate to say that the, the listening isn't necessarily as important as the expression, I guess, and being able to argue your ideas rather than listen to others. Um, uh, I would say that's accurate. Uh, what, what did you have in mind for a sort of uh, a listening style course? What would you uh, what would you suggest? Yeah. Um, well, so let me give you a little bit of background why I say this. Yeah. <laughs> so I used to be a guy that only spoke, you know, and and then I uh, I used to have a girlfriend that told me, look, man, you speak too much and you don't listen a lot. <laughs> 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 that's what she said man. and so and so i told her okay so what can i do to fix it right and then she said well you you can start by listening and then i i i started to understand how important it was look i didn't start listening because i wanted to to understand societal issues i just started listening because i wanted to understand what my girlfriend what my ex-girlfriend was saying at the time and uh, and sounds funny but it is the truth man so then um obviously it didn't change from one day to another but yeah i i took a i took a business course and in this business course they they talk about active listening i think the course was business 272 uh organizational behavior and the reason why they talk about active listening is because of the same problem uh in organizations there is drama and there is um all of there are all of these issues that that we see nowadays you know people competing for a position yeah. and things like that but then i took it as, as an opportunity to actually learn how to listen so I, there was this active listening skill which i do not remember the proper steps but basically what it is is you listen and instead of thinking how i'm gonna reply to that you are not you you basically take in all the info and then once you take that info then you wait until they finish speaking because obviously that's when the the last piece of data is coming in and then you and then you analyze it and try to do it you know take your time and then respond so that sounds like something that not a lot of people do so some people listen to the first few sentences or maybe the first few words of what you say and then they make a decision on your position based on that so what sometimes what happens to me uh, when I'm speaking with my friends, they cut me in the middle of what I'm saying because they think that what I'm saying is inappropriate. And then I'm like, well, if you let me finish, then you'll see where I'm going to to say, right? Um, so that that's a process, I think, to basically uh, let people know that they first need to take in all the info and then uh, analyze it and see whether and see how to respond and i think that doesn't really take a lot of time because they do it they do the analysis analysis uh the analysis oh sorry <laughs> they do the analysis the analysis very quick into the communication right mm -hmm. uh they are just impatient and they just want to respond real quick and that's why we get into these arguments where two people are speaking at the same time as you can see they're really not responding to each other they're just you know barking like dogs almost Almost right. <laughs> You're just like yeah. no, one hundred percent. I'm with. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's just, can we uh, teach ourselves to uh, hold on to our thoughts for just a couple, just a couple seconds longer to get the rest of the full picture uh, without uh, bursting out and um, 
making assumptions on what you're saying without uh, actually getting all that information. Yeah. Oh, and that, and that, that I think is, is quite poignant. I think uh, that we, we, te- we tend to not, um, we, we tend to just make these quick assumptions without uh, receiving all the information. Maybe is that because it's convenient or maybe it's because it's quicker, I guess, in this case, but uh, it says something about us as a, as, as a people, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, look, I, if we want to be more compassionate to, to people, we need to start by listening more listening to, to them. people yeah how can you be compassionate if you don't really understand them right and how can you be compassionate mm-hmm. if you don't really want to listen to them you only want to tell them what to do and 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 that's the most yeah. dictatorial way of doing it because you wanna um you you wanna just tell people how to react based on what you believe is right and and look, uh, I think there's a lot of people doing that. Like I see people that say, well, you should work more, right? <laughs> or you should save more. Like there is there is all these uh, people just offering solutions. I don't know if you remember. I was your CA, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah so <laughs> I remember. You remember that, right? <laughs> so so we, we, actually had a, uh, we actually had a conversation in which... Uh, well, that was part of the the train of the CA training. You know, sometimes the people from from the community will come and talk to us, and and all we needed to do was uh, listening to you, and hopefully be mm-hmm. able to offer you the resources that you needed to. And I think we had a, a couple of these conversations, um, uh, and and I hope I did a good job at listening to you. But after um, after we had these these conversations, I remember it feels really very interesting because you start under, you start to understand another person um, very well. You're like, wow, I didn't know all these thoughts that this person was having. And, and I had these conversations, I don't know, like a week, maybe like three or four. And that's when I started to practice these active listening skills. And look, I really appreciate mm-hmm. uh, taking on this role I, in, as a community advisor because it allowed me to, to practice. And hopefully more people will be able to do that. I encourage people to maybe listen to their mom or to their dad, or maybe to listen to their kids, right? If you're a mom and a dad, then listen to your kids. Yeah. Uh, because everybody says, oh, this new generation, these millennials um, are so stupid or whatever. Well, what about you listen to them, right? What about you understand what their problems are? Maybe these are the same problems that you used to have when you were younger and you can offer a solution, right? I don't know. Yeah, maybe there, there's a reason why people... I always say that there is a reason why people are protesting, um, even if, say, uh, the protests uh, in question may not be um, something uh, that everyone agrees with. Um, the, and a good example would be, like, say, all the, the protests that have been happening about all the lockdowns and the, uh, the great reset, as it were. And uh, there's a reason these people feel this disenfranchised, right? There's a reason that they are so quick uh, to believe that uh, the government is a part of this overarching international conspiracy uh, to uh, completely change the way, uh, the way of life uh, and our, the way our society works. And uh, there is reason for that. And getting down to the source of why it is these people think that, I think that's how these sorts of conversations, the way, that's the way these sorts of conversations need to go. You need to listen. You're right. We need to listen to them, 
to understand why it is they're so quick to believe these sorts of, you know, um, this, these crazy uh, ideas about geopolitics and, and all that. Uh, what, what is it that, that, that is causing them to think that? And how can we bridge that divide? Yeah, definitely. I think another, another thing um, the government can do to actually improve the way we think individually is to put more emphasis on, on critical thinking skills. When I was in high school, um, the, the high school I, I was with uh, worked directly with one of the major universities of, in Mexico. And this, um, this university started to put a lot of pressure on critical thinking classes. So basically, we always had a math class, Spanish class, and a critical thinking class. And what the critical, mm, okay. yeah, and what the critical thinking class was, the, was designed to do was to bring you through the, uh, through the scientific method and also how to apply it basically on your everyday life. So, yeah. so we, had these, uh, we, had a, we had this class and the professor was super intelligent. He was really interesting as well. Um, and one of the, one of the main components of, of, of these classes was you had to bring up, I mean, he will say, okay, homosexuality. This is one of the topics, right? So uh, he will he will ask one person to come up to speak and and basically say, okay, what do you think about homosexuality? And and then he will bring another person to bring up and speak for like five minutes about homosexuality. So two people were giving their yeah. points of view, and then and then everybody was uh, was to deconstruct the their their presentations and their ideas, and then um, and then we based on that we we were. Uh, looking into which one was flawed and which one wasn't. Uh, so surprisingly, everybody was flawed with their ideas because, you know, some people thought, yes. yeah, well, homosexuality is just a choice. Or some people thought, um, well, homosexuality is genetic. So like, uh, or the, because we were high school kids, so we didn't have an idea of what homosexuality was yeah. or where it's coming from. So it was either it was good or it was bad. And you had to come up with reasons to support your argument, even though you didn't know why it was good or yeah, it was bad. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> people were just saying, well, I, I think homosexuality is good because my brother is homosexual and my brother is good. Therefore, it, it is a good thing. Uh, and, and look, uh, the, that, that was kind of the, the way of, of doing it in that class. But then the, the, the important takeaway of that class was uh, we were able to, to talk about difficult subjects uh, but we were not mm -hmm. to be. We were not to judge the person that were that was making the arguments because when we knew that yes. nobody knew shit. Um, so what what we wanted to to understand was how we were constructing arguments and how easily it was for some people to be very convincing and some others not to be convincing because there's people that are eloquent and there are people that yes. that can put their their words in, in very sweet in very sweet ways and resonate with the majority or or resonate with a very vocal minority so yeah. uh, i would have to i have to like i have a similar uh, uh story sure. of that the in um in high school we had a similar class in my high school uh it was called social justice uh and so social justice was the kind of it was the elective that a lot of students really wanted to take just purely because of the approach of the teacher that taught it. Uh, the teacher who I won't name uh, for, for privacy reasons, but he was very well renowned at our high school for 
treating all of his students like adults and um, opening the door to the sorts of conversations that were very taboo uh, at the time uh, in my uh, in my town. Uh, my town is primarily um, evangelical uh, by uh, and pro so Protestant-esque, you know, and so they hold, a lot of the people hold very traditional values. And uh, when you're 15 and your teacher asks you to debate on abortion, um, that in itself is, it's quite empowering to be able to have these sorts of conversations. Uh, and um, I know it taught, it was what helped ignite the spark in me uh, to, uh, to, have to begin to uh, deconstruct sorts of big issues uh, like race and uh, economic inequality and all that. Uh, the uh, unfortunate thing, and once again, I think it just paints a picture of, uh, of sort of the issue at hand is that that teacher was unfortunately run out of my hometown. Uh, his ideas uh, were considered to be um, uh, dangerous, I guess you could say, sort of like in the old days. Uh, and uh, he no longer teaches, uh, unfortunately, uh, because that, and that was the only class that taught critical thinking in any sort of manner at the high school. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it just highlights the disconnect between teaching critical thinking and uh, in schools, because it's just not happening in, uh, in communities where it really matters the most. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're not able to have difficult, difficult conversations, then we're, we're going to just react like monkeys do, you know, like chimps. Exactly. I mean, chimps kill each other. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> they kill each other because they don't agree on something. They are like, oh, you make yeah. me angry and I hate being angry, so I'm going to kill you. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like that's kind of the reasoning we're we're following now nowadays. Is like, hmm, yeah, you don't believe in gun in, in gun rights? Hmm, I think I'm gonna kill you. What? Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stock up on all my guns. Yeah, like it's because you don't believe in guns. I'm gonna buy all the guns that you did. Yeah, buy. or like, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm not saying that gun activists are, are trying to kill people. I'm just saying that uh, gun act. It, and any activist that doesn't that is not willing to have a conversation uh, with with people that do not believe the, what they believe, then it is just is just deemed to react uh, viscerally. You know, you're you're just yes. not you're not gonna react to the best of your possibilities just because you don't have all the data in uh, available to you, right? And you have neglected to collect this data. So when people say educate yourself, so this is something I've been told. Uh, and and I kind of hate when people tell me that, but I I understand it is true. So sometimes I I ask a question, and usually those are difficult questions. And and then someone tells me, you need to be you need to educate yourself. Don't put the don't put the burden on me. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll educate myself on that matter. But the problem is there are for 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 certain issues there are two ways you can educate yourself. Right? You Google it. And then you'll find maybe the right wing perspective on it, and then or you can find yeah. the left wing perspective on it. And it is usually very well. Both of them are really well written. That both of them make a lot of sense. So I think the problem is that is which one are you gonna find first? If you find, <laughs> I think a metaphor could be like say a carpenter goes out and he is told to build a house. He's given 
in this case, say Google is all of your materials, right? It's all of the knowledge at your disposal to build this house, but you don't know how to put it together. You, you, haven't, you don't have the tools, you don't have the hammer, you don't have the saw, right? You don't have the ability to put all of this house together, even though, say, all that knowledge is right there in front of you, right? Even if it's right there, if you don't know how to put the door on or to install a window or to, you know, critically think and determine to say if something's misinformation or it's not, right? If you don't have that ability, then telling someone to go and educate themselves, it doesn't really do anything. It's just going to push them to whichever opinion is more in line with what they believe. And I find that that's very often what happens is you tell someone to go educate themselves and they're like, okay. And then they go and they type in a Google search and they find the, the opinion that most is in line with what they already believed on the, on the matter. Yeah. And then the problem is that uh, <coughs> Google or YouTube, if you're looking at YouTube videos, um, they will just give you more of what you really like. Right. Exactly. And, and then you're like, look, I've, I've seen, let's say a hundred videos that say what I believe. And I only hear you saying something that I don't believe. So you must exactly. be exactly. You must be wrong. Yeah, you must be wrong because there's like a hundred, <laughs> like 99% of people that I listen to say what I believe and, and you yeah. are the only one that I don't. So that, that says the opposite. So you're wrong. And then they, they just start um, fighting again. This is a visceral way of doing it. And look, I, it's so, such a shame that, that your community, um, you know, made this professor stop teaching and, And again, this, this, this is why these conversations are difficult to have because oftentimes communities just don't want to have these conversations. In Mexico, exactly. in Mexico we have the saying, uh, don't talk about politics or football or religion in the table, you know, in the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And I was, I mean, right now I'm thinking, why, why, <laughs> why is that, right? Like you cannot talk about football in, in the dinner table, like, <laughs> right? Is it, is it, are we, are we that bad? Like is football like really gonna, the end all be yeah, all. is it gonna jeopardize our friendships? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then obviously I understand religion and politics, but football. So then you realize that um, most of these things is just about, about, people risking their identities. I think they say, look, I'm not going to talk football, religion, politics. And in all of these three things, if you get the common denominator is your identity and your ego is attached to all three of them. Yeah. And by, if we sit here and have these sorts of conversations, you might change my mind uh, on how I feel about these things. And I don't, that scares me, you know, right? Like if, if we sit here and talk about say, uh, left-wing politics versus right-wing politics, and then I say something about, um, say, universal base income that you really agree with, and then there's that realization that, say, that right-wing person might actually be a bit more left-wing than they thought, and that's scary, well, yeah, right? Yeah, of course, and look, um, I don't know if you have gone through this kind of issue, but oftentimes when something in your life changes, where and that thing hold a part of your identity it makes you feel that part of you die right psychologically like for example um when i moved from living with my parents to living alone um I, like everybody everybody wants to move from their away from their parents for a bit right and be an adult 
Yeah. But for some reason, I was so sad and I was crying like hell in the airplane, right? And then I was, I was thinking, why? <laughs> Look, I, I did this because I wanted to do it. Why am I so sad? And I realized that that, that was because I just killed part of my identity, you know, psychologically. Mm-hmm. And um, similarly, I used to have a, a girlfriend, and, you know, when we broke up, even though we, we, were, we still remain friends, for some reason, I, was, I felt so sad. And I was like, why am I feeling so sad? And it, it is because part of my identity was, was attached to her in a way. Um, and the same thing happens with politics and football and religion, I think. You know, once you, detach, once you change your opinion, even you understand that maybe your political uh, opinion was wrong, and then you change it. Well, it is so difficult, man. It's so uncomfortable to kill that part of you and then move it to another, to another area and then change your identity because it, it, I, I don't know if we're supposed to do this as, as humans, right? I don't know if that's something that we were uh, expected to do with our evolution. So it is, it is just uncomfortable and hard, right? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like we as, as humans, you know, like uh, we associate ourselves with these various, I think it comes down to tribes, you know, like, and it's, it's a very primal thing that we as humans do. We group ourselves with in-groups and out-groups. And um, when you find out that you might not actually be a part of that in-group, it's, it's scary, you know, and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's frightening. Um, I went through something kind of like that. Um, uh, it was when I took a little foray into party politics in university, as every political science kid does. And um, uh, the party that I associated myself with, uh, I was associated with for a number of years. And um, something happened. And uh, it was quite a large issue uh of the day uh the media uh, cycles had all picked it up and uh it was quite 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 a scandal and i went and talked with my member of parliament and i talked with a couple of the ministers that i had met uh through my tenure with the party and um uh i i I wanted to have that frank conversation with them and you you get what you what you get and that's the typical you know roundabout political speech of talking points that you're going to hear on TV for, for weeks on end. And that's when I realized that, you know, maybe this identity that I've given for myself with this party is just not for me. And it was really sad because I felt that I was making headway and making gains for being so young. And, uh, but definitely my affiliation uh, to this party, it, it just, just withered away like that. And I could feel a part of me just that I had invested so much time into over the, over the years just disappeared, just like that. And it was kind of soul, soul-wrenching and, and gutting, but it was also, I think, the natural evolution. And so I was at peace with it, as I'm sure you were at peace with that small part of you uh, dying on your way to Canada, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I mean, one of my previous guests in this podcast told me that uh, leaders don't run for office. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so he told me there is no politician that's an actual leader. And then I asked him yeah. why, and, and he said, "Look, lead, natural leaders and leaders, real leaders, they are put in there by people, but not because they want to be there. Usually, it's people that are forcing them to be in that position. You know, people start start asking them questions and start putting the pressure on them to become." Mm-hmm. Uh, this leader that they expect. So, um, 
so when when you're talking about this 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 story with your political party, well, oftentimes I think um, that's probably the worst approach to 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 identify to a party, right? Because you're dealing with yes. you're dealing with a group of people most of the time. Oh, for sure. That are all trying to get to benefit themselves in some way, right? Yes. And uh, as yeah, that we will call that my naivety of being 19 years old. <laughs> yeah. And look, I, 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 I did, I did take part of politics uh, or did attempt to to take part on the SFSS politics. You know, I ran for president. Yeah. And obviously, that means I'm not a real leader because I ran for office. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't sell yourself so short, Miguel. <laughs> Look, uh, obviously there are not uh, there are not uh, hard truths here, but um, yeah. what I'm just saying is, look, I, I did attempt to to become part of the system in a way, and I actually, I mean, I I did think that I could make a change and I could help the students. Um, actually it wasn't there I wasn't there for my own gain because if I did actually take office then I'll have to spend another ten thousand dollars just to be able to uh to complete the the full term do the yeah. things yeah yeah because <laughs> because I had to take another semester right and I pay international fission so it's not like I'm there for the money obviously so yeah. I'm there because I wanted to do some changes and and and, and that's why I said that I'm really happy that at least the people that won um are doing the things that i think are benefiting students like obviously mm -hmm. i don't agree with everything they do and once i told them i don't agree with everything you do <laughs> they they asked me oh, they they were surprised and they were like what don't you agree with because i feel that that's a problem once you say i don't agree with everything you do then yeah they they, they got kind of upset and i'm like well, you know that you don't, you possibly don't agree with everything you did yesterday, right? So why are you angry at me? <laughs> like, it is, it is a big problem. Like, you, you should take disagreement as a natural thing. Like, you're not perfect. And I think right now, unfortunately, we're educated to feel that we, that everything we do, people should agree with it. Or, or, you know, disagreement oftentimes is taken as an offense, which is kind of a crazy yes. thing. But anyways, I think there are, I think they are doing a good job in their in in what they're yeah they're doing a good job I think like I, I like most of the things I've seen from them and and I'd like to see more of that uh, in the next administration more the the, the main thing I, I like about them is that they are able to get together they're able to 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 utilize the resources uh, as efficient as efficiently yes. as they can. And they're able to provide value to students. Look, that's what they're for in there. They're not in there to create drama like previous administrations. And I'm happy with that. Um, one, one last uh, little tidbit that I will, I will want to ask you, because obviously we can, get, we sure. can uh, spend time on these conversations forever. But I want to make sure that, um, that people get maybe like a summarized, a summarized piece of you. Uh, imagine that you that you meet an 18 year old Tristan, or let's say 19, because that's when you uh, when you were when you went to meet the this political politician. Mm -hmm. Imagine you meet this 19 year old Tristan, and then you have to give him five pieces of advice. What would they be? Five pieces of advice. Ooh, this is a good one. Yeah, it's a bit hard, um... but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's going to be good. Uh, the first piece of advice uh, I would give myself would be to um, uh, always be compassionate. Uh, I, f- I find that compassion is something that we generally lack. And it was something I definitely think I lacked back in, in those days. Um, so being able to see the other side and have with understanding and caring and kindness um, I, I, I definitely think that ha- holding compassion to your heart is very important uh, for when we're trying to address things like this. Um, another piece of advice I would give would be uh, uh, <laughs> don't go to Rotterdam, Tristan, in, uh, in a year. Uh, instead, just stay in Amsterdam for a, another couple of weeks. <laughs> okay, why is that? Uh, Tell me. <laughs> uh, man, <laughs> May, oh it's just uh, it's a whole story uh but i i ended up in a pretty uh <laughs> funny situation in rotterdam over new year's <laughs> that i really don't want to relive um the other uh another uh, humor aside um another piece of advice i'd give to myself would be um uh to really make a point of um keeping connections with the people around me. Um, I know that my journey has been um, quite arduous over the past number of years. Um, There's been a lot of struggles and and hardship. And um, I think if, if if I could keep those connections that I may have lost over over the years through my travels or through whatever movements I've been making, um, that would be something that I really, really would like uh, is to be able to say that I had kept those connections. Um, Another one would be to uh, keep keep my nose to the dirt and keep powering on. I know uh, the, uh, and just to keep working hard because uh, young Tristan at that time was a lot more idealistic and probably a bit more pessimistic, I think, uh, at the same time, uh, with the, with outlook and, uh, but with a lot of big ideas and, you know, just keep powering through it. And no matter what the hardships that are to come, uh, if you just keep working hard, uh, it will pay off and, I think that I have seen that. Uh, I've seen that the fruits of my labor through this this TED talk I've been giving, and the fact that people kind of want to hear what I have to say about these sorts of issues. Um, and I think that says a lot. Uh, the last thing would be to um, always stay true to uh, who you are, or I am. I guess I'd be saying to myself, uh, people will push you try to push you left or right or up or down. Right. Um, but I think it's important to always just stay true to yourself uh, and the way you view things, but also being open to change and to criticism, but at the same time, like knowing who you are, uh, and embracing that, uh, I think is very important. Uh, but yeah, those are my five pieces of advice. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were amazing because they were really uh, targeted towards you know your young self, and I I could see how yeah. they will really help you. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time in these holidays to talk to me. 
It was really thank you for having no, me. No, it was amazing to hear you, and it was a really easy conversation to have about very difficult topics. And I wish mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, this easy to talk to other people. So, um, if yeah, just when do you think the TED Talk is going to be published on YouTube? Um, uh, we are still that is still up for up in the air. I have been uh, very aggressively trying to get some information out of my organizers, but uh, it's still unclear. Uh, but I will be posting that and blasting it everywhere as soon as I know the release schedule. Hey, amazing. So uh, in the meantime, they can listen to you here. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Anyways, man, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for the listeners to um, take the time to listen to this whole conversation. And if you have any more questions, make sure that you write them on the comments or just send me a direct inbox. I'll try to respond as quickly as possible and have a great uh, a great sunday it's sunday today so have a great sunday tristan uh hope hope we can keep in touch and you too miguel take care